Welcome, consumed listeners, to another season of the podcast that stokes candid conversations with California eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. And speaking of stoking, I'm stoked you're here. How California is that? This season, I spoke exclusively with women in the wine industry, and it was a transformative experience on my end. These are smart, accomplished, and dare I say, ballsy people I interviewed from diverse experiences, cultures, and walks of life. Oh, and I chatted with them outdoors to be COVID safe. Don't be surprised if you hear a lawnmower, barking dog, or wind chime in the breeze. This is my backyard. Welcome. I want to say something here about one of my biggest supporters and cheerleaders, Rancho de Onaveros Wines in California's Santa Maria Valley. Vigneron James Onaveros is an example of a man who shares his platform with the women in his life, business, and industry, including me. He wrote a post on Instagram about the all-women crews that work at Rancho de Onaveros, and I wanted to share that with you. He wrote, There's a sense of detail and accuracy that I've always admired and appreciated out of our crew of ladies. The level of detail and care is unmistakably fantastic. In a business where every little detail adds up in the end to something superior, if done well, it truly matters. I'm always impressed and privileged with the results from this excellent team. Many thanks to Ranchos de Onaveros and James for his support of this podcast and the diversity of voices in the wine industry. For more information about Ranchos de Onaveros wines, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com. Many thanks as well to Slow Life Magazine, the publication that puts the people of San Luis Obispo County in the spotlight. For my next food column in the magazine, I'm writing about rogue pizza makers. That's folks who make and sell their artisan pizzas through non-traditional channels, like from their home kitchen. It turns out there's a real trend here on the Central Coast of secret pizza people who use social media to promote and sell their stuff. Check out the next issue of Slow Life Magazine for more information or visit slowlifemagazine.com. Steffi Terizi is a viticulturist based in Paso Robles, whose work has helped Central Coast vineyards and wineries grow. She's also the farmer behind Giornata Wines, the brand that she and her husband Brian Terizi own, focusing on Italian varietal wines. Steffi and Brian both grew up in the Midwest, though they didn't meet until they attended Fresno State University in the Enology Department. Since then, they've launched several businesses together, including the Cabernet Sauvignon brand, Broadside, and the Paso Robles Pasta Company, Etto. I've done some work with Brian and Steffi, so I already knew she'd make me laugh a lot, and that's exactly what happened. Listen as we talk about pasta for the people, the punk band Dead Milkmen, Cherry Cola Jello Salad, and Coyotes. See, I'm already laughing. Here's Steffi Terizi. So, Steffi, it's Stephanie is your name, but everybody calls you Steffi, which I love. That is true. Um, and I don't really know when that started. Um, yeah. My mom growing up I, always called me Steph. She's really the only person that's ever called me Steph and can ever call me Steph. Um, And I think my best friend in seventh grade kind of started it. And when my mom would get really mad at me, she would call me Steffi Lee. That was like the angry name where it was, I did something wrong. And if I heard Steffi Lee, I would just like, I knew I was like, oh, I either better run or just be ready to like 
mm. take my punishment. Right. <laughs> but then it stuck. So Steffi. It did. And it was it was my best friend from seventh grade. And um, I think she's still my best friend. Oh. And um, I love her to death. And she moved away at the end of eighth grade. And wow. 25 minutes away. It was like moving from Paso Robles to San Luis Obispo. But you never saw her again. We saw each other all the time. And oh, then we you got did? a driver's license and we were constantly together. Oh. And all we did was get into a lot of trouble together. Like, like how bad, though? Because mm, you don't strike me as a troublemaker. When I was in <laughs> high school, I was very new wave punk rock. What? I had Liberty Spikes some days. <laughs> no. I had combat boots. No. I listened to the Circle Jerks, the Dead Kennedys, the Dead Milkmen, Fugazi. I mean... The Dead Milkmen. Didn't they have the song... <laughs> Punk Rock Girl. Bitchin' Camaro, Bitchin' Camaro. <laughs> Just ran over my neighbor. Yeah. It was a good one. It was really good. Whenever but I, I was see very... a Camaro, I think, Bitchin' Camaro... <laughs> And then I, whenever I see a Mustang, I go, "Dang, Mustang!" It's the same. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a thing. Oh, Steffi, Steffi, the punk rocker. <laughs> I was, I was super punk rock. So we we did get into trouble together, but it was always kind of like it was almost like Australians, like they flirt with getting deported, but never really do. Like oh. we flirted with getting in lots of trouble, but mm. and we we crossed the line several times, but yeah. we never really got in trouble for it. But I yeah, love it. we had a ton of fun together, always. Where is she now? She lives in Seattle, and she's a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> if I got picked up by a police officer and I was in the cage in the back of the car and they put the dead milkman on, I'd be like, take me wherever I need to go. <laughs> We've been in a paddy wagon together. Yeah, oh. we have. We have. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's... That's a good beginning. It's an auspicious <laughs> beginning. What did your parents do? Well, I know you grew up in the Midwest. You grew up in Illinois. I did. Northern Illinois. Uh, we were about 15 minutes from the Wisconsin border, mm -hmm. and we were about an uh, hour and a half or so outside of Chicago. Um, Chicago was to the east of us. So, why, why were you guys there? Was it was your family an immigrant family, like the hub of something? There? You know, my my mother's side. My my mother's father. Uh, came over from Germany, mm -hmm. and um, my sister has done a lot of research to, to learn all these stories. So it, it turns out um, my mother's maiden name was Kordemeyer, mm -hmm. and they're from the town of Kordemeyer. Nice. Handy. <laughs> Handy. Yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in Germany. And um, they came through, and they ended up being kind of gullible people, I believe, mm. and somehow immediately got robbed and lost all their money. Oh. And so somehow ended up in the Midwest, um, dairy family, so of course, dairy land, yeah. um, settled down on a farm. And uh, yeah, and then my, I think my grandfather was brought over, he was like tiny. Like, I don't think he remembers really coming over. He was very, very young, though. Yeah. Um, my grandmother's side of the family, uh, uh, again, on my mom's side, um, English and a very well-known banking family in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, so they had been there for a while, I think. And then I don't know much past my grandmother's, so my great-grandparents. I don't really know anything about them. Yeah. Um, they all passed away but my grandmother in, maybe it was the pandemic. I was just going to say, was it? From 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, 
it's and they all they all passed away but her and she lived with her nanny and they moved out of the city and you know took the family fortune pretty much bought a farm and um, that's where she grew up. Wow. Um, but she had like furs that were her mother's. Like I still have some of them Stoles. in my closet. Yeah. And yeah. I'm so terrified to wear them that someone will throw paint at me. But <laughs> Or you that know. something's living in them. That's <laughs> what I'm always <laughs> Or it comes back alive, like Pet <laughs> cemetery or something. Um, but uh, and then on my father's side, um, my grandmother's side of the family came from Chicago again. Um, my great-grandfather was part of the Chicago Mafia. Uh, he was um, Irish and, um, yeah, really weird. My dad remembers um, being in the car with my great-grandfather when he was young, and he must have been... So my grandmother had three sets of twins, all boys, which oh, is bizarre. Lord. And that's why people... we I have a set of twins. Right? And when people are like, are you having more? I'm like, hell no. Like, <laughs> do you know where I come from? Like, these... No. That's they come that... in litters of kids, and we only need one. So um, That's like Vegas. It's it scary. You don't want to gamble <laughs> like that. It No, no. no. And so... Uh, but my, my, my dad remembers being in the car and I think it was when the middle set of twins were being born. So my dad was like six and he said, my great grandfather would pull up to somewhere, get a carton of eggs out of the trunk, walk up to the business, go inside. Mm -hmm. And he would either come back with a big envelope of money or his fist wrapped around with ice and a towel. Oh, so that's, that is so, so bad. I guess that's where my bruiser attitude comes from. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Um, and then my grandfather's side of the family, he was an orphan as well. Dropped out of school at the age of eight or nine and worked as a mechanic. Um, and he, I think, served in both the Korean War and World War II, I want to say, yeah. as an airline mechanic. And... Um, and then he worked for Rolls-Royce in Chicago for a while. And then, yeah, him and my grandmother met. And, yeah. So, he's, so cool. he loved to build cars. And when I was 15, he asked me if I, if he said, you know, I've got a car that I think you'll like. I said, okay. And he said, but we need to rebuild the engine together. And the last thing we had to do was do the timing chain. But I, I learned how to put that engine together. And wow. it was really fun. It was a 1967 Cadillac DeVille Coupe. It was huge. I made yeah. out with a lot of boys in that couch sure, back there's seat. Sure, there's space. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was an awesome first car to have. What a sweet thing for him to offer, too. That's, that's not an easy thing to offer. That requires a ton of patience. It does. And I think it's funny. Even recently, I've said to my dad, you know, and he said, you know, none of, none of us ever asked dad to teach us like his trade of what he knew and my dad's and uh he was an electrical engineer um and my uncle is a principal of a high school in monroe wisconsin um and then i mean nobody else really followed in that mechanical like building. footsteps yeah. um so i guess maybe he, i was the first one that expressed interest i guess mm -hmm. and but even you know being out on the vineyard today i mean tinkering around i have a basic knowledge of engines how mm -hmm. they work kind of what goes where um, and I can kind of figure it out. Yeah, so. that's fascinating. You, did I read correctly? Was your dad involved in missions in some way? He was. He um, he went uh, to Honduras with a group of doctors, dentists, and engineers. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it was interesting. He started doing this, and then uh, my mother and him separated, mm -hmm. and he kept doing it. And for him, I think it gave him this sense of purpose. I remember he would come back, and he would have you know all these pictures to show me, which was really exciting. And as he was talking about it and telling me, I mean, I would kind of get a little more information out. But my dad was very, very religious, mm -hmm. and um, always kind of the you should do this, you should do that, yeah. you should do you know kind of kind of attitude and. And when my mom and him separated, um, he he went to Honduras, and they said, "Well, somebody has to has to hand out birth control and condoms and kind of talk about." And my dad ended up having to do it. I don't know well, if he yeah. drew a, 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 a the tiny straw or what <laughs> happened, but he was so uncomfortable. And in the pictures, Aww. his face was bright red. He was like Aww. looking at the floor. He was looking at anywhere, but he did it. Yeah. And I think it made me see that he. He had this humbleness to him mm -hmm. that he would he would do anything for the cause he believed in. Mm -hmm. um, so it was it was pretty it was pretty cool to see that. That is so lovely. What was it like? Your parents didn't separate until how, about how long? I was graduated from high school. Okay, so so you did you have a pretty normal upbringing then, like Midwestern? Did you eat lots yeah. of casseroles? I'm sorry, we, as a Californian, as a snob, <laughs> that's the first thing I think. Did you eat a lot of casseroles? You did. Huh? We ate a lot of casseroles, and not only that, we ate. Um, um, jello salads and yes. you know the kind that are 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 in shapes of things <laughs> and they might they have things that are glued in them like <laughs> they're treasures <laughs> <laughs> um like ambrosia you can't see through but sure. you know there's stuff in there there's treasures that's um, right but it, yeah and when brian uh who's also from the midwest and i don't know why he was surprised by this but we yeah. went to um we were in my my hometown of freeport and my mother-in-law was like, I am going to make a special salad for you. And I knew what kind of salad this was going to I be. I love how you say it salad, was... by the way. When you really, like, <laughs> let yourself, it's, yeah. It is salad. <laughs> it's, um, and it's not green. It's, no. well, it could be green if it's pistachio-flavored jello. Right, exactly. Jello. But, um, so my grandmother, or I'm sorry, my mother-in-law made um, cherry cola jello salad. And Brian was, he acted what like he had hell? never even heard of, it. I mean, he could never even fathom this. But I'm like, you're from Ohio, bro. I mean, you've <laughs> seen stuff like this. And even though, like, people say pop there, it's yeah. you drink pop, you yeah. don't drink soda. And um, and Brian's like, well, we say soda from Cincinnati. And I, when I was there, they said pop. Of course Most they of them, did. It was like 70% of was the people Was he bragging said about Cincinnati a little bit? Um, <laughs> yeah, he tried to make it seem way more less... Midwestern than what it right. really is, I think. You know, I love those whatever. places. Like, I, I don't mean to, I just love when people, like, there are certain foodways that are so, you know, the Midwest, that's what I think of is casseroles, things made in big vessels, like a jello salad, like a casserole, like a dip, you know? Everything's a one pot wonder. Well, and I, <laughs> you know, of course I love that. I love that. And to be honest, I mean, who didn't grow up with that when I, I was a child of the 80s and that's what we ate. But the Midwest is like, um, it was just, it was like its, its era. It was the golden age of... I love it. Am I making a fool of myself? I no, I think we had a Super Bowl party one year when the Packers were playing. And I have a, f a friend named Julie, and she moved here from Chicago. And she brought tater tot casserole to Perfect. the Super Bowl party. And in fact, she had just had a baby two days beforehand. So the fact that she didn't actually come, but she had it made and she sent it with her husband. I love it. I mean, that's, that's Thank hardcore. Thank you, Julie. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Green Bay, which, by the way, my son's favorite team, which is really... 
really cool. Well, who doesn't like cheese foam hats? I, I mean, know. you know? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. Nothing. Well, so your parents, when you're growing up, did you live like on a cul-de-sac or something, just in a typical town? We lived, yeah, in a very Midwestern small town. Um, my, my, um, yeah, I mean, we just, we had a little ranch style house mm-hmm. and um, neighbors and yeah, friends with everybody. Um, I mean, yeah, we didn't really have to lock our cars, yeah, really. Right. We didn't have to. We yeah. did sometimes. Um, sure. But yeah. Where'd the science come from? Because I know, I mean, that, that became, that became your thing. Yeah, I have always loved math and science. It's mm-hmm. just always been my thing. I cannot spell, um, and neither of my kids can't spell either. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's that's them or what, but uh, yeah, I've just always loved math and science. Yeah, yeah. And, and music, yeah. And music, too. And music. Do you play music? I played the piano for a long time, and then <laughs> uh, I didn't really like practicing anymore. Well, no. And it just, um, I sang a lot. I was in an a cappella choir. I was in a Southern Baptist a cappella choir, wow. which was really fun. Um, and we did some traveling and different competitions and festivals and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, yeah, my first year of, I, I sang kind of, it was a great America right outside yeah. of Chicago. And so I, I was part of their entertainment and sang that first summer and on stage and in the thing. And it was pretty fun. Gosh. And, um, but then I, yeah, now I'm terrified to do it. I'm well. terrified. I need a lot of beer to get on stage now. A lot. Noted. <laughs> Noted. It's as though you've given me the recipe. <laughs> I love it. All right. So you ended up going to, you got your, did you get your bachelor's of science in the Midwest? I think you. I did. I okay. started, um, I went for a year to a community college and then transferred up to UW Lacrosse right. and then finished up in Madison my last year. And with all that changing around of schools, of course, of all, and I was, uh, my major was was biochem, and yeah. my minor was music. And um, I minored in through, music too. Oh, all, that's awesome. <laughs> through all that changing, I missed like an entry level music class, and I never graduated. And I didn't find out until I came to California, went back to school at Fresno State, and they said, "Well, you never really got your degree." And I'm like, "What?" And they said, "Well, you ca- you have a couple choices. If you want to get that degree from UW Madison, just." You can take this class online. But by that time, I was already a California resident. And, I mean, the price just to get that was atrocious. And, yeah. I I mean, you can't live that way when you're 22, 23. You don't have that kind of money to just throw around. I can't believe that happened and to you. It was kind of weird. But I was yeah. like, well. So then I thought, well, I'll go back to school at Fresno State. Um, and in the meantime, um, you know, kind of figuring out what you want to do. I mean, I was always, I always was very sure I was going to be a doctor or something in the medical mm-hmm. field. And... Um, as time went on that I just, I, I didn't have a passion for it. And I had a mentor of mine just say, you know, Hey, are you, are you so excited about the next step and starting med school? And I was like, meh, meh. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you mean? Meh, meh. And I said, well, I mean, kinda. And he said, no, he said, this is eight more years of your life. This is super serious. God, this is going to so cost serious. you a ton of money. It's yeah. a ton of debt. And if you don't have the passion to even go to class, how are you going to have a passion to do it when you're done? Oh, it's hard on your mental health, too. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And so I didn't know what to do. So my boyfriend was moving back to California. And so I was like, well, I think I'll just move with you. So I ended up moving out to California and kind of on a whim. Where um, did you land? We were, I thought we were going to live in San Francisco. And then when we were there, it's 
cold. It turns out. Yes. <laughs> in July. Yeah. Um, so we ended up in Santa Rosa um, mm-hmm. and kind of settled down there. I went back to, I couldn't find a lab job that really paid much of anything. Uh, I went back to work in restaurants and really uh, kind of discovered or, I mean, I loved wine already, but I discovered wine in wine country. It's totally different. How is it um, different? Well, because winemakers walk in the door every day, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that's that person made what's on that other person's table. Right. Like, that's, that's amazing. And yeah. there aren't many, I guess the inspiration for me was finding this, like, visually seeing this product from, like, start to end. I mean... You can plant the vines, you grow the grapes, you make the wine, you put it in the bottle, you sell it. And I mean, it's a very start to finish thing. And I mean, like the furniture business can be that way. I mean, you can bend your own wood, you can do. But besides that, there's not a whole lot of industries that I had been really exposed to that that have that long sort of start to finish. That's very true. That's very true, actually. And in, in, in terms of, um, I mean, the things I can think of that would be kind of similar would be maybe like building instruments. Yeah, yeah. But how, these are artisan specialty things. Um, not like things that you're buying parts from China or Vietnam or, you yeah. know, wherever from to make this thing. That's that's a very good point. It was just, it, for me, it was really inspiring. And uh, so I decided to jump back into going to school. And at first I started taking some tasting classes and it was very inexpensive. I was always late because I was cut at my job at the restaurant. And by the time I could get to this class, I was always the last one in the door. And I had to sit next to the teacher every time <laughs> wow. who had... He wore a suspender and belt, which I never quite understood. I'll, I'll never forget it from that for that reason, because you only desperate, need one of those. Desperate to keep his pants up. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but uh, he would always, as we would taste and we would kind of write down and look over, I mean, having my chemistry background, he would look at my paper and he's like, whoa. He's like, what are you writing down? What are you? And, I'm, and I took it as kind of a very analytical kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, and, you know, there's a difference between Madagascar vanilla and and... Tahitian, Tahitian vanilla, right? yes. There was a big difference between the two of them. Um, and he looked at that and he said, have you ever thought, he said, I know you work in restaurants. Have you ever thought about going the sommelier route? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, not really. Um, I'm still trying to convince my dad I'm not a bad person for not wanting to be a doctor. <laughs> and uh, so I, I kind of went in through with those eyes, more the food and wine kind of idea. And he said, why don't you check out the Santa Rosa Junior College? They have an excellent wine kind of thing. Just dabble in it. Take a few classes. It's $11 per credit hour, so you can afford it. And I said, I'm going to check it out. So I signed up for VIT 101. And uh, the first, like, three weeks were in the classroom. And then every week you went to someone in the class. Everyone was retired, but, like, four people. I was one of them. And... um, we would go to one of those vineyards of the people that were in the class, and we would talk about, you would, you would look around and see everything, how it was set up, and they'd talk about their biggest problems and how to solve them. And you had, you know, people that had their own vineyards and in the class, and so it was really like a, wow. always a roundtable discussion of how to solve problems. And practical, if the people Very actually practical. have vineyards in and your group. to me now, even when I am helping someone, when I walk into the vineyard, you know, I have a different outlook on how to solve this problem. And yeah. let's talk about your problems. I mean, 
And what, what's your biggest obstacle? Oh, it's these, you know, head train, blah, blah, blah. They fall over all the time. They this, they that. How can we solve it? Um, mm. And then, then with the organics that I believe in and, yeah. and um, incorporating all of that to just be, help me solve all my problems. Let's take a quick detour here to talk about another consumed sponsor. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. I found a quote, I, I know you know it, but John Bonet, who wrote the book, The New California Wine, he said that you've become the area's great alternative vineyardist. Um, and I don't know that much about your alternative, um, I don't know that much about your tack and your approach. So what do you think he means by that? I spent a couple days with John driving around the West Side. He did a, a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle on basically, I, I don't even know what he called it, but it was basically how every top of the hill is different on the West Side of Paso Robles. Mm. Totally true. Different soil types, different, I mean, colors of soil. Um, you know, we've got a vineyard up there. Half of it is red and the half of it is like a light brown with all this chalky kind of rocks on the top. And then you go the next hill over on Kyler Canyon, and it's like a dark brown soil, but still that same crazy pH, yeah. but just looks completely different. So he did a whole a whole article on kind of the tops of the hills, how they different um, structure their, you know, everything about the soil, what can grow there, what shouldn't be growing there, um, which was kind of fun. So we hung out for a couple days while we were doing this, and I took him to a couple different vineyards and said, here, here's what we're doing here, and here's what we're doing here. And, and I took him to an, an east side vineyard, mm-hmm. and, you know, when you talk to farmers, what's your, what's your biggest pest? I never thought it would be coyotes. Never. In a million really? years. I was like, coyotes? Aren't they winemakers? Aren't they your biggest pest? But they, they weren't. They were coyotes. Huh. So he had a huge vineyard, and he's like, I can't afford to fence all this off. And they're going to get in anyway. They're going to go. I mean, I just don't know what to do. So basically coyotes come in and they go, they're thirsty. They're after the irrigation. Mm-hmm. So they come in and they bite on the ends of the irrigation tube where when you turn the water off, the water kind of settles down yeah. at the end. There's no way for it to drain. And uh, then they get their drink. And then when you turn it on, it's like a beautiful fountain at the ends of all of your rows. <laughs> and you there's a lot of blue terms that come out of your mouth when yeah. you turn it on because you're like, I just fixed all of those. Mm-hmm. And it happens over and over and over again. So he was frustrated. And so John's like, well, you know, what did you do? And I took him out as kind of a follow-up. And um, I think I took him out, or maybe I just told him about it. I can't remember now. It's so long ago. But um, so we were, basically, we we put some buckets at the ends of the rows Mm -hmm. and put a piece of spaghetti tubing in there. So every time the water was turned on, those buckets would get filled up. So my idea was the coyotes would come along and there'd be water there. They wouldn't have to bite the irrigation tubes. And we don't have to replace the tubes. And then you don't have to replace them and fix the holes and, and... 
And so I thought this would solve the problem. So when I went out there, the guy's like, this is working even better than, than I thought it would. And I said, oh, that's great. And he said, no. He said, one of my guys came along and he threw a two by four in one of the, the buckets and um, a mouse would go down to drink the water and then the coyotes would eat the mouse and then drink the water and then they would leave. And he said, this works great. Now we, cause I noticed there's two by fours in like all of the buckets and I'm like, what this is, is the strangest this little is like, weird, but, obstacle And sometimes course. you're like, I don't want to ask because I, I, I might not want to know the answer. Yeah, right. That's an amazing solution, <laughs> But it's, a, it's a way to, but those are the kinds of things we try to think about is living with your pests because most of them you can't eradicate. Yeah. And I wish you could eradicate gophers. I mean, mm-hmm. and you just can't. Um, I did hear Tablas Creek was coming up with some sort of uh, cover crop that kind of repelled gophers, but they, mm-hmm. I, I don't, haven't heard much. Yeah, no, there's so. the big press release, and then it's like, oh, well, I hope that's <laughs> well, going well. I think well. they were maybe they did a little trial, and yeah. I don't know, but um, well, so so you're talking about things that are happening in the vineyard, and you're obviously on a very practical level, but then where you left me with with where you'd come from is you know wine uh, tasting class at Santa Rosa. There's a big difference between drinking and appreciating wine. And getting down into the dirt. Yeah, well, that's where that viticulture class came in. And then I, I enrolled in the Santa Rosa Junior College. I got a viticulture certificate from there. Mm-hmm. Um, just met a ton of wonderful people up there yeah. and uh, worked on vineyards up there and really fell in love with it. I mean, when you're outside and those California blue skies where you can't see a cloud anywhere, that shade of blue, you can't have a better office. Yeah, no, that's a good office for sure. So (laughs) did you kind of have an eye toward you wanted to be hired by people to, if they have problems in the vineyard, you wanted to Not really. I mean, uh, I went back to school at Fresno State. Just I was working in a vineyard at a a great winery up in Napa, and I wanted to understand the winemaking side more. But there was always a full schedule and there wasn't any time for me to be in the cellar and they weren't really interested in helping me learn that. So I thought, well, you know, I never got my degree. Why I'll go back to Fresno state and see what that's all about. So I did a a double major with enology and viticulture and then did a minor in um, chemistry and ornamental horticulture. Holy cow. (laughs) You're like a quadruple threat. That's crazy. It was weird. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's so cool that you got to pick Fresno also because great program. Um, but they, so they were able to make space for your schedule and your life. Is that what you're saying? Well, they, when I went to, when I went back to school at Fresno State, um, I drove down just two days a week or, you know, it was, it was basically my weekend away from working in the restaurant. Um, I would drive down there and each either couch surf or stay at a cheap motel, um, and then drive back after class and fight the traffic through that area between San Francisco and Petaluma. Like that area. Where there's one Ugh. tiny place you can And be. I know there, yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's like, I got to get there by 4 o'clock. Yeah. <sighs> and it was stressful, and it was, but I did it. And then the next year I said, I'm just going to move down to Fresno and immerse myself in there full time and, and make that change. And I did. Um, and that's where Brian and I met at right. school. Um, and, uh, yeah. How did you meet? Were you in class together or something? We, so I was a year into the program when Brian started, and um, when I started, there was only like eight or nine people in my class for enology. And I thought, huh. And uh, it wasn't very many. It just, and there was a lot of room. And so they, Fresno started going to kind of recruiting, uh, you know, j- uh, not job fairs, but like hmm. setting up booths at different places yeah. to kind of recruit students. A little outreach, yeah. And 
I mean, I can't say this for sure, but I feel like a lot of times they were like, why don't you start in the enology program and then move over to dentistry when a spot opens? Or I oh, think because it was kind of because like they a, had an open, yeah. they had a lot of open enrollment for like the culture. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of some people that came into the program, they came to the classes and they were like, yeah, this isn't really what I want to do. But it's kind of fun to learn. And like these people have come from all walks of life. Some are returning students. Some are are new students. Some are older students. Some are people that are going into retirement that just want to make a little wine in their backyard. Mm. Um, So it's kind of a a fun place to be with a lot of different people uh, with many different ideas. Um, But we all got along pretty well. Um, And so at the end of that first year, they said, okay, so next year there's a lot of new students coming in. So you guys, as kind of the, the ongoing class, we would like you to be very nice and welcoming to these new students. So first time I saw Brian, he was working in the vineyard, which he's never worked in the vineyard again, just saying. And he was, he had this Arizona Wildcats tank top on that had holes in it and dirt smeared all over him. And I mean, he looked homeless almost. And he had these like ripped up like shorts that, and I don't, and he was, I'm, he was sweaty and he was like, and he came in and I was like, oh, hi, are you a new student here? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, hi, I'm Steffi. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out and da, da, da. And I was trying to be really nice. And he's like, oh, thanks. And so then we left and he went his way. I went my way. So like three or four days later, and this was before school started. So we were on campus running the winery and, do, you know, running that, that winery and yeah. vineyards that were there. So a couple days later, I don't even remember how many, um, I was in there and I see what I thought was more new students. And I was like, oh, I have to go be friendly. So I went over and, you know, just a friendly Midwesterner, right, to begin sure. with. So I said exactly the same thing I did before. And, and he was like, oh, hi. And, and he was wearing glasses. His hair was brushed. And he had sure. a collared shirt. He looked different. He looked like a different person. Yes. So I reintroduced myself to He him. wasn't in a tank top anymore. He was not. He was not a wildcat. And... <laughs> So then a few days later, he had another look going on. I don't, he had a, a visor on and something. I don't, but I introduced himself, myself to him a third time. And he, at that point, he said, I know, you've already introduced yourself to me three times now. And I was like, oh, isn't he? <laughs> so um, so I, I kind of dismissed him as being kind of square, grumpy, just kind of one of those weird returning students that I shouldn't get to. We used to call them non-trads, non-traditional students. <laughs> kind of a non-trad. <laughs> but uh, as as time went on the next year, uh, we got to know each other a little bit. But he was always that student in class that would say, when I worked in Italy, blah, 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 blah. Oh, when Brian. I worked at, at Rosenblum Cellars, blah, 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 blah. And, and it was always kind of like, him again, you know. And uh, It was not his first rodeo. He'd already <laughs> done some things, apparently. Yes. Okay. And, um so at the end of that year, we were in something called Enology Society. And we, Brian and I, were both voted in as the same um, co-working officers to, uh, called the acquisitions officers. So we would basically reach out to people in the industry, um, try to secure donations, speakers, um, anything that people would help students out with. Um, and so both of yeah, like I said, both of us were voted in together. And uh, so I was like, oh, eh, I don't know. Well, it'll be fine. It's not like I have to hang out with them all the time, you know. <laughs> and so then the summer goes by, and, and then that, that August we had a meeting. And, again, I'm late because I didn't get off for work on time. And so I come in, the only seat, just like that 
teacher in that wine class was next to Brian. Mm. And, you know, I sat there and I've never laughed so hard. And much like he's never been back into a vineyard, he's never made me laugh as hard again. (laughs) So he used all his one-liners on me. must have been. Oh, he's so funny. (laughs) So dry. But we we definitely, uh, we had biochemistry together then that year. And I actually kind of ended up sort of tutoring him. We Mm -hmm. studied together. But... um, and uh, we just kind of fell in love yeah. eating his cooking. He cooks all the time. Yeah. And, you know, and drinking Italian wine and being in school together. And um, a couple months later, uh, we started dating exclusively. And a couple months after that, we got engaged. And then we went to Europe together for a couple weeks. And um, I was kind of like, and for him, he's always like, well, it was a test to see if I could like hang out with you in another country where we didn't speak we couldn't communicate with many other people besides just the two of us and we I think we passed I mean we didn't we didn't get an A but I mean nobody gets an A on that (laughs) kind of thing well I was gonna actually say it was like two what was it 2006 was a big year for you guys a lot happened yeah we we graduated school and um Yeah, uh, we. I graduated this semester before Brian, so I finished in like May or June of 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found ourselves married and then pregnant that year yeah. also. And then um, in 2006, uh, I took a part-time job here in Paso Robles at Luna Mata Vineyard and to be a vineyard manager. And to, I mean, my kids were... They're twins, so they both came on the same day. <laughs> um, but they 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 were born in middle of November, and um, January first, I started as a part time vineyard manager. Holy so to be able to be yeah. with infants, you know, four or five days a week, and then work two days a week was really perfect. And in the field I wanted to be in, and the fact that they would let me work part time in something like yeah, that's that, amazing. Like we couldn't say no um, at the time. Brian was a um, sales representative for Chambers and Chambers Distributing. Mm-hmm. And so he actually changed his territory. Uh, he used to have Modesto down to Bakersfield and then the mountains. And so he changed, he wrote a petition to petition changing his territory to Paso Robles, Fresno, Bakersfield, and the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so it was like the triangle with nothing in it. And in the <laughs> middle, like there's nothing like, um, but it was, so they, they did okay that. And Brian worked for Chambers for 10 years. We started Giornata, uh, the Italian winery in 2006. Um, did Broadside come after that? Broadside came after oh, that. Okay. So 2007, then Broadside started as a way to supplement our uh, low-income passion for <laughs> making right, right. Italian varieties. Um, and, uh, yeah, and everything's kind of grown since then. Broadside has done so well, though. I know you're not um, you're not the principal owners anymore, we, or owners at all? Or? We, we still own a percentage. You do, okay. And, um, but we're not involved. The day-to-day stopped, um, like, four or five years ago, mm-hmm. and we're, we're pretty removed yeah. at this point. Now, we don't even do sales trips. We don't do anything. Okay. But that being uh, such a cab-driven bus, yeah, with all of the other Italian things that you do between now you have Eto, the pasta um, 
pasta juggernaut up in Paso. I just think it's so great. And then um, Granada, but Broadside really was, it, it almost does feel like you made a conscious decision. We're going to make something really amazing out of maybe a less expensive, am I saying that right? Less expensive than Italian Kind of. Bridles. And a, a big part of it too was when we started taking those steps backwards from Broadside, we had more time. And Brian has wanted to do the pastaficho for a long time. And I kept saying, no, we have two wineries, two kids, two dogs. We do everything in doubles. Yeah. Um, it's just more efficient that way. <laughs> no discounts, though. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I and, and finally he found a space and he's like, it's here. It's not all that expensive for square mm-hmm. footage. You know, what do you think of this idea? And I said, let's do it. I think we can do this. And I honestly thought I would hate it. I would hate it. I love it. Yeah. It is it is fun. And you yeah. know, I mean, even like earlier as we were talking, I think before we started recording, yeah. um, we were talking a little bit about, you know, our my kids being at the Montessori school mm-hmm. and kind of where the where they've gone. And we were always considered, I think, that family that like fed people. Like we mm-hmm. always brought the big non-jello salad, <laughs> one pot wonder that would, and it was always empty. Would at feed the, a crowd, yeah. We would always feed people. And I, I would say Brian always feeds people. Mm-hmm. That's just something he does so well. And yeah. he's so generous when it comes to food. He and is. just, he just well, if I, I'll just make more so more people can get fed yeah. is kind of his idea. Um, Brian, when we were talking to each other, because I helped out a little bit on the packaging, something that I'll never, ever forget so he called me in the middle of the day one day, and I and he said, "Do you happen to know anybody at the food bank? Because I'm looking at all of these." He was extruding pasta, testing out the dyes or something, or testing out the machine somehow. Testing a, out the dryer, yeah. Okay, that's right, the dryer. He had all of this perfectly good pasta, but maybe like the shape was a little squished or something like right. that. Um, pounds and pounds and pounds of it. And he was like, I can't throw this away. It's shelf stable. Do you think that they would take it? And I said, well, gosh, I know somebody over there. Let's work on it. And now I I think that's a regular thing, right? Which makes so much sense. Yeah. We've done some things with Echo. We've done some things. Now we're with, um, well, I mean, when the pandemic started almost a year ago now, which seems crazy. Sad, yeah. we had some teachers come into to the market and we were kind of talking to them for a few minutes and the, both the teachers um, had had our kids in seventh grade. And so we were talking a little bit and, you know, and, and they said, well, we're not, you know, about what they were worried about and how they were anxious. And, you know, I said, well, are you going to start the Zoom classes? Or are you going to, and they're like, oh, I mean, we, we're trying to fill this out and we don't have a lot of a lot of guidance and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And I mean, there's, it's, it's hard to figure out. And then the one teacher said, the last thing we're worried about are your kids. You're two very driven type A kids. And, and I said, I said, oh, okay. And he said, well, I mean, we're worried about, you know, the kids that both parents work and they know when to help them. And then, and then the other, the other teacher said, well, the homeless kids. And I said, homeless kids in my town, Mm. what? And Brian looked at me and I looked at him and they proceeded to tell us, I mean, there's a percentage of homeless kids in our kids' grade. And I thought, you've got to be, I had no idea. And so first thing out of Brian's mouth, how can we help? What can we do? Well, we had lost all the restaurant accounts because the restaurants had closed down, or many of them, I should say. A few of them 
really figured out the to-go thing and did it very, very well. Right. Um, but most most restaurants stopped. And I could see our our pasta guy in the back pacing, worried, am I going to get fired? Am I, what's going to happen to me? What about, am I, is my job at Jeopardy right now? All my restaurant friends lost their jobs. What am I going to do? He's like mopping, sweating, trying to, I'm a good worker. Don't fire me, you know. And so we ended up making 125 uh, packs of pasta a week that we donated to the Templeton Middle School for a drive-through program on Fridays where it was a box of food that people could take home. And it was interesting because Brian went a few times and actually helped. He volunteered, he worked, he, um, and you know, he said, you know, it was kind of weird because mm-hmm. some people walked up and took the box. He's like, some people look like they really needed the help. Mm-hmm. He's like, other people, well, there was a Mercedes that went through the line. And, mm-hmm. you and you know, you never know mm-hmm. what the other person's shoes. It's, so you, you don't think, but all we could think was if we could just help a yeah. couple families, like really help them, it would make us so happy. And since that has, and then that ended when school stopped in like July, I think yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't started back up with them, but we also, we've continued that same kind of idea with the loaves and fishes. Mm-hmm. So um, every Monday they come and pick up um, and we do a, a big donation. And um, those guys are amazing. Yeah. I mean, we really learned, Brian went and spent a morning with them and he said, those guys, their attitudes, their hearts are in the most amazing place. Yeah. He's like, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to do this. Yeah. So we started something at Eto called Pasta for People. Mm-hmm. And it's a donation program where you can donate any sum of money. And um, it goes directly toward this, keeping this Pasta for People going. Um, and I'm sure we will have to start up something soon. We just wanted to get through the year and I can't believe it's February now. It's crazy. No, I know. Pasta for people, there's so many things that are cool about that. One of them, just I remember the process. He did want to start this this pasta business. And when we talked about it a couple times, it was like, this is the only thing like this here that would be doing dried pasta. The overhead is so low. Now, I don't know if you'd say that still, but compa- maybe, let's say, compared to wine, yeah. I mean, wine, it moves so slow. Yes. I mean, you can you can put something off for a while before you do it. And it's not true with pasta. It's a perishable, or, you know, until it goes into the dryer and you remove the, the water. Um, it's, a, it's a perishable item and mm-hmm. it moves fast. And I mean, you think about the, the wine side. I mean, if you want to do it all yourself, kind of as we were talking earlier, mm-hmm. you have to plant the grapes. You wait about three years. I mean, you got to take a year to prep the soil, get everything ready. Now I think you need almost two years to get plants ordered because it's so such a long process, exactly what you want. And then you've got three years until really you get your first grape and that's a pretty small crop. And then your fourth year is pretty good. Now you've got two years in barrels. You're looking at 10 years before you even see any wine. Whereas with pasta, I mean, we place an order for our flour on a Tuesday. They grind it, it gets delivered on Wednesday. We shove it in the machine with some water, and pasta comes out, and we can sell it that day. Amazing. And it, it's it's just a totally different um, cash flow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just completely different. I think the way most people consume pasta is different too. Like that's an. I have loved how you've marketed it as um, it's like an everyday, it's like a daily bread kind of thing. It's an it's a, a healthful, wholesome inexpensive way to feed yourself with very basic and, you know, heritage ingredients. Um, but 
a person could, like in Italy, they eat pasta every single day. I think um, we eat pasta every day. Yeah. We do. And it's, I mean, it's not... But you may not drink wine. I mean, maybe you guys drink wine every day, but we don't. Yeah. Um, and so you can, you can really move pasta if people are eating the way we do. Absolutely. It's... Um, it's interesting, like, we, we took our kids to Italy, and uh, it was the end of sixth grade was really their first time that we took them and, like, spent time. And we went to the winery where Brian worked at in Italy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have to stay for lunch. You have to come. So there we're inside, and Marta is cooking, and, and the girls asked if they could help her. And she said, oh, yes, I would love that. So one of them was standing there, and she said, okay, now we need to do the pasta. And... And Ada said, well, I know, I know how to, I know how to weigh out the pasta and I know, I know each person should get a hundred grams of pasta. And she said, I can weigh out the pasta. And she saw the scale there. And so she weighed out each person, you know, got a hundred grams. And she said, you know, Marta, in Stadionini, she said, everyone just cooks the whole box. They don't even measure the pasta there. They just cook the whole box. And they, they kind of laughed about it a little bit, but it's, it's just, you know, I'm, it, it's so she funny. knows that. That is so funny. But yeah, there there is a portion size, yeah. and I mean Brian and I eat a little less than what our kids do. I mean, mm-hmm. they're tennis players, ballerinas, volleyball players. I mean, those kids come home from those activities, they're starving, and well, they should sure. eat more. Pasta. Sure, that's different. You <laughs> but know. it's a. I mean, you kind of tweak it, but it's really. I mean, it shouldn't be like a vat of pasta that yeah. you're eating per day. Much as you may want to. Yeah. I mean, much <laughs> as you may want to. No, it shouldn't be a vat of pasta. With with regard to the wine, so I've always been a little confused, actually, about where your job description with Dronata ends and Brian's begins. So is he much more, he's like in the cellar and you're out in the field? Yeah, the, the easiest, um, the easiest I've ever heard it described was when I was introduced at 15C to give an Italian wine class. And she said, this is Steffi Terizzi from Gironata. And or Allie said, this is Steffi Terizzi from Gironata. She's the farmer. Her husband's the winemaker. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. easy. Um, she grows the grapes. He makes the wine. Yeah. Um, but really, I mean, I try to do all the field work. I do try to um, keep the relationships going with our growers. Mm-hmm. Um, we just kind of... Uh, looking at adopting because when you're buying grapes it's you can have different levels of involvement we want to be involved we want to know what's going on we want to know what's being sprayed we want to know we want to be on the same page as the owner and so we've made it um we were actually in the middle of kind of writing up something kind of adopting kind of the slow wine kind of like the slow food yes um uh ideas of growing um and some most of what they have written down Anybody can do. Um, it's pretty easy. Uh, so for me, it's just, you know, keeping in check with the grapes, deciding when we want to pick them. And I feel like sometimes I bring them to the winery and drop them off and give Brian a salute and say, all right, don't screw it up. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, Well, he does a good job, and so do you. Um, you guys do a great job and a total force to be reckoned with. And it's, it surprised me when I was reading about you, too, that you've only really lived here you haven't been here forever. It's really only been, yeah, 2006, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like I've, um, I feel like you are so deeply rooted here. Um, yeah, and I'm sure, you know, I, I'm interviewing all women in the wine industry for this season, and I don't want it just to be about gender. I just felt like, well, this is a great, you know, a great opportunity to talk to lots of amazing women, but, um, 
has that been in any way difficult for you or uh, has it been like have you just been surprised and shocked by how easy it is or I'm looking for all different kinds of reactions you know it it I mean it it kind of depends on what you're doing that day I mean for us every day is so different we don't we don't go in and punch a clock nine to five and sit at a desk the same desk and deal with the same problems every day every day is totally different um sometimes you want to repeat those days and sometimes you hope you never have that day again yeah (laughs) um it's interesting because um i've had conversations with um especially like psalms in the wine and it gets really interesting when children come into the picture because um either you should have a i mean all so many wine events are at night and you're yeah. expected to be there and network and that's what furthers your career and that's what gives you opportunities down the road. And if you're not there and then you're, those opportunities don't happen as easily. Right. So if you have a spouse that is happy to be at home and that's kind of your time to, to, to work, um, it works out really well, but it seems like that's not always what happens. Yeah. Um, I think for on the farming world, I mean, when I walk into a vineyard, no one's like, wow, what an aggressive looking person. Like she's going to yell at me or she's going to, she's, I, I, you know, come in, I smile. I usually bring a box of pasta and a bottle of wine. Hey, here, you know, it's nice to meet you or I'm excited to be back or whatever it is. Um, But, you know, in trying to work together, well, you know, this is really the vision I see and being able to communicate and having those conversations. And, and I mean, I've gotten yelled at a lot by buyers, other growers, labor contractors, I mean, you name it. And, and it, I've been yelled at by people, but yelling doesn't solve a lot of anything. So it's like, let's talk this out. Okay. Let's identify the problem. Let's, you know, go down the road. And, um, yeah, it, it, so even for vineyard management, I think it almost, I don't, I'm not viewed as anyone's competition, I don't mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. I don't, I like to work with people, not against them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, you know, well, that's my vineyard, or that's this, or, but yeah, I mean, I don't really look all that. <laughs> like I said, you don't strike me as a troublemaker, <laughs> but I was wrong, so, <laughs> oh, Steffi. It's so yeah. fun to have you here. Um, give my girls and Brian my best. My girls. Did I say my girls? (laughs) Give your girls and your Brian my best. I will. Thank you for having me. Of course. Listeners, I hope you've learned something, felt something, or been pushed to taste something new during this episode. I'm getting a buzz just thinking about it. If you want to learn more about Consumed or any of my guests, go to letsgetconsumed.com. Very special thanks to my stalwart editor, Chris Lambert, who helps me out when he's not working on his own project, the wildly popular true crime podcast, Your Own Backyard, about the disappearance of Cal Poly student Kristen Smart. There's new movement in that story, by the way, so look the podcast up right now. Also, if you like Consumed and think more people should hear it, 
please review the podcast wherever you like to listen. That always gives me a thrill. Okay, until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. Bye.